You make no friends in the pits and you take no prisoners. One minute you're up half a million in soybeans and the next boom. Your kids don't go to college and they've repossessed your Bentley. Are you with me? The revolution starts now. Starts now. We have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Turn those machines back on! You are about to enter the Peter Schiff Show. Show me the money! If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on Earth. The Peter Schiff Show is on. Call in now. 855-4-SHIFT. That's 855-472-4433. I don't know when they decided that they wanted to make a virtue out of selfishness. Your money. Your stories. Your freedom. The Peter Schiff Show. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing it just beyond. No, it's beyond magnificently. I hope that you're doing Magnificently, Stefan Molyneux sitting in for Peter Schiff. Peter sends his usual apologies. Uh, something came up at the last minute. Chippendales is auditioning, and uh, because he's into Austrian economics, he is going to be doing the bump and grind in Lederhosen. So with any luck, there will be live YouTube footage of that. Keep your eyes peeled for the Schiff show. So um, I hope you're doing well. We're going to talk about the economy this morning. We all know that there's a lot of smoke and mirrors that go on in the government reporting of statistics. I mean, it, it's literally horrendous, the amount of lies, obfuscations, and outright falsehoods that occur in the economic realm. And one of the most chilling is the degree to which the growing poverty in America is being hidden. I mean, there's obviously political reasons for that, but the worst thing that you want to, the worst place you want to be in life is broke and in debt. You know, going in debt is, you know, people. some people have this sort of allergic reaction to debt. Debt is perfectly fine. When I uh, co-founded a software company in the 90s, we raised $85,000 to start with. The investors tragically only made about 5,000% return on investment. So uh, could have been 5,001. Wasn't, but um, you, ra you raise money, and there's nothing wrong with that. You need a car to get to work. You've got to borrow some money. Well, the car allows you to get to work. You make the money. You all know this stuff. So when you are borrowing to invest in something, and this can be a car. It can also be houses, uh, clothes, whatever it is. If you're borrowing to invest, that's fine. But if you end up broke and in debt, then you are in a really, really terrible position. And I, this is where... The West as a whole, and we'll just sort of focus on America in particular this morning. This is where America is. It's absolutely terrifying the degree to which these numbers are not known in the United States. We're going to go over a few of them. I really want to take your calls about this in the great land of golden corn and rap. Uh, if you could uh, call 855-472-4433, I really want to know how is the grind down of the American economy affecting you? What is your life like? How is it panning out relative to what you thought it was going to be? Unemployment is, is high. And, and of course, they say it's lower, but that's because 80 million plus people are simply out of the workforce. I guess you can call people cured. If an asteroid hits the oncology wing of your hospital, look, we have no more cancer patients. I guess we're good doctors. But nuking people out of the economy is not exactly contributing to employment. And the people who have a voice, the people in the media who have a voice, the politicians, they're all doing very well. 
I mean, the top 1%, the top 2% are doing fantastically. The amount of economic gains that has accrued to the super rich is staggering. And prior probably to the fall of the Roman Empire was unprecedented in history. Once you get political power, you get a massive redistribution of wealth. The war used to be fought. Wars used to be fought geographically. Now they're fought through time. You see, because soldiers in other countries can actually defend themselves, but the unborn you're burdening in America with over a million dollars of debt and unfunded liabilities before they even pop out of their mama's hoo-hoo, they can't defend themselves. They're too busy trying to suck up nutrients through their belly button. So the war is now fought in the most cowardly way against the unborn, where you use their future productivity as collateral to bribe special interest groups in the here and now. This all has an effect. How is it affecting you? I really, really want to know. Let's go over some statistics, first and foremost. Home ownership rate in the United States has dropped to the lowest level in almost 20 years. Consumer spending for durable goods has dropped 3.23% since November. It's a fairly clear sign that an economic slowdown is ahead. Major retailers are closing stores at the fastest pace that we have ever seen since the collapse of Lehman Brothers. This one blows my mind. I, I would never, I mean, I'm pretty cynical about the economy. I never would have guessed this one. Let me know what you think. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 20% for those currently in public school, that's one in five. 20% of all families in the United States do not have a single member who is employed. One out of every five families in the United States is completely unemployed. That is such a staggering statistic that it's really important to let that one sink in. You know, like a mastodon in a tar pit, that's got some wiggle room down below. One in five families has nobody who is employed. And in the generosity of these statistics, we're counting working for the government as being, quote, employed. <laughs> so, I mean, if we throw those people in, the numbers get even worse. Now, when you have a family that has basically ended its economic participation in the modern world, it's not just this generation that suffers. I had a friend of mine when I was growing up who really wanted to be a professor and managed to become a professor. The fact that his own father was the professor and the head of a department was actually quite helpful. Think of the amount of answers that my friend could get from his father about how to become a professor because his father had already done it. Why is there tend to be this kind of a medieval guild-style replication of occupation from father to son, from mother to daughter, and so on? Because if your dad's a lawyer and you want to become a lawyer, hey, you've got a lot of information that you can get a hold of. When Bill Gates was originally negotiating with IBM, where he ended up licensing DOS, which he'd bought from another programmer for, I think, sixty or $70,000, he was running in and out of the room talking to his father. His father was a lawyer who specialized in, property, in intellectual property, copyrights, patents, and so on kind of helpful to have someone like that in your corner when you're negotiating major deals and having trouble squirting out a beard from your chin. I think he still has trouble doing that. <laughs> but 
the human capital that gets destroyed when you have a generation that grows up with no participation in the labor force is pretty significant. Where are these kids going to go for advice on how to get a job, on how to keep a job, on how to please an employer, on how to please customers, on how to get ahead, on what to study, on how hard to work, how much extra to work, am I being exploited or am I building up momentum for a promotion? They're not going to have access to that information because they have people who are raising them who are not in the workforce. My, I mean, I've done, I got my first job when I was 10. I've done, I mean, the list of my jobs is something like a cruise ship full of schizophrenic was, would, would produce. But I will be able to advise my children on job opportunities, how to get jobs, how to build jobs, how to please people. How is it affecting you, this economic slowdown? We're going to talk more about that. I want to get your thoughts on that. 855-472-4433. We'll be right back after the break. Peter Schiff Show. Nine out of ten historians agree. If Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine were alive today, both would be Schiff Radio Premium members. Somewhere up there, Thomas Jefferson is looking down with great pride. Schiff Radio continues right now. Good morning, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio, sitting in for Peter Schiff, who uh, is actually not going to be around all week. I will be sitting in for the great Peter. Thanks again for handing over your show to uh, a known bald man. Uh, very, very uh, brave of you. Um, so um, we do have a caller. Well, we'll get back to some of these economic statistics, but I really want to know what, what is your experience of the economy these days? Mike from New York, are you on the line? Yes, I'm right here, Stefan. All right, what's on your mind, brother? Hey, man, uh, yeah, you were talking about some pretty crazy statistics, and uh, I was wondering what you think the uh, consequences of us not paying back national debt would be. Oh, they'll be delightful. It's pretty obvious. Oh, they'll be delightful. Um, did, did you? I don't want to cut, cut off your question. You just basically want to know what I think will happen when the national debt, which cannot be paid, will not be paid. Well, Is that right? Exactly, yeah. Well, okay, so the traditional expedient when the economy has been royally flushed down the toilet by state power, crony capitalism, and special interest groups is go to war. Go to war is a wonderful way to um, reform the economy, right? The government takes over a whole bunch of um, the economy, uh, and then in the, at the end of the Second World War in particular, it relinquishes more control than it had before. The economy was the cure not for capitalism, the economy, uh, sorry, the Second World War was a cure not for capitalism, which is people say, well, capitalism was crazy and then it was saved with the Second World War. No, it was socialism that the Second World War in a tragic way saved the West from. Uh, the socialism, national socialism. Why? Why are the communists called communists, but the national socialists in Germany are called Nazis? Because if you call the Nazis by their proper name, which is national socialists, socialists don't look so good, do they? So um, the traditional expedient for a desperately destroyed government, quote, managed industrial economy is to go to war because war 
creates the destruction of the excess population. War allows government. War is the health of the state, as the statement has gone for many years. Uh, war allows the government to grow exponentially. And war creates unity, and war allows people to embrace austerity without resentment because you're pulling together for the common cause of defeating X, Y, Z, A, B, C, whichever ogre of the moment is invented or created. It's important to remember how much the American elites funded the Nazis prior to the Second World War. Now that expedient of war to cover up the decaying rubble of a state-destroyed economy is no longer available, at least in the West, because fundamentally because of nuclear war. Before, when war was like this fun sociopath game of pushing around monopoly pieces on a map of death, well, then uh, it was a fun game. But with nuclear war, and also with biologically targeted weapons and you name it, now the leaders themselves can be destroyed in a war. Not so much fun, is it, when you can't just point the lasers at the proletariat, but they actually come sky-beaming down on your forehead, suddenly it's blessed are the peacemakers. So... advent of nuclear weapons has destroyed the capacity of Western oligarchs to wage war to cover up a destroyed economy. So what are they going to do? I think hyperinflation is not that easy a game anymore. Most of the economies in the world are in freefall. And the reason that we don't see hyperinflation, I think one of the reasons, is that we're comparing dollars against yen, against Romaldi and, and francs and so on, right, Swiss francs. So we are comparing currencies, state-run overprinted currencies against state-run overprinted currencies, which is like a whole bunch of people jumping out of a plane, linking arms and saying, hey, I don't see anyone falling. That's because you're me measuring yourself relative to each other, relative to the ground that is coming up with a big old clap to smack these currencies upside the head. If you compare currencies to gold, well, or Bitcoin, I think you can start to see a little bit of the difference occurring. So I think the soft default of hyperinflation is less likely because there's too many places for money to go, too many other currencies, gold, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, uh, the basket of commodity currencies that are always being developed and promised on, right? Do you base your currency on a basket of gold, and, or sorry, a basket of commodities like oil and so on? There's too many places for gold, sorry, for, for, for a currency to flee to. So it seems unlikely that there's going to be hyperinflation. I think that there is going to be a tide that turns against the dependent classes. So early on in, de in a democracy, which is, of course, not what America was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a republic. But as it turns out, pieces of moldy old paper are no match for eternally hungry hippo political power ambitions of sociopathic politicians. So they overcame all of those paper fortresses uh, simply by stepping over them. But there is a way to gain power in a democracy, which is to tell people that they're being taken advantage of and to promise, a, promise them special protection and subsidies under the law. And that creates a dependent group of people who will always vote for you. And those people can be no minorities, they can be single moms, they can be incompetent government, government workers, but I repeat myself. So you tell people, you're being oppressed, you're being discriminated against. You have no chance without us. You see, you need us. You need the fortress of weaponry known as the state to protect you from all the bad ogres out there who won't pay you what you're worth. 
It won't give you the freedom that you so lustfully deserve and desire. And once you've convinced people that they're being hard done by and that there are enemies called capitalists, called employers, the 1%, then you can offer them preferential legislation and they become dependent upon the state. Once they become dependent on the state, they will always vote for more government. And in this way, they follow the mad, rabid, alpha-dog state off the cliff. And so right now, the government is still gaining political power from those dependent on the state. So guess what? They're all about inclusion. They're all about sympathy for the underdog. They're all about equality. But when the weight of the dependent classes, and by that I don't only mean the poor or single moms or whatever, I also mean the military-industrial complex, although they're usually the last to go. When the weight of the dependent classes gets too great for the state, then you will see a sudden shift in ethics. And now it's no longer about those poor, oppressed people that we need to help. It's about those lazy bums who need to stand up for themselves. And you will see, you will, you will be amazed at how quickly this will change. Because ethics is just a tool of the powerful. It's not anything universal. I mean, if it was anything universal, thou shalt not steal would extend itself to the actual government and there'd be no taxation. It's not designed to help you. It's designed to justify your enslavement to the powers that be. That's what's called ethics. Patriotism! The Stockholm Syndrome to a piece of paper and a piece of cloth with colored dye, which usually involves lots of people dying. So there'll be a switch in ethics. And suddenly, the poor will no longer be, oh, these sad people who are trying their very best, these noble heroic people uh, who just need a helping hand to get by and so on. Suddenly, it will be, you will see all these exposés on people who are ripping off the poverty programs, uh, on people who refuse job opportunities. There'll be a sudden switch, and suddenly the sympathy for the poor, the sympathy for the dependent classes, will dry up, vanish and blow away, and suddenly it will be, everybody needs to stand for themselves, and we need to pull together, and we need to work. Those who do not toil shall not eat, say the communists, and uh, we will be joining them soon enough. This is Stefan Molyneux for The Peter Schiff Show. Give me a call, 472, uh, sorry, 855-472-4433. Let's talk more about your experience of poverty and the economy. We will be right back after the break. The Peter Schiff Show. Turn to the Peter Schiff Show. Call in now, 855-4-SHIFT. That's 855-472-4433. The Peter Schiff Show. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. This is Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio, sitting in for Peter Schiff. We are talking about the smoking Arizona dinosaur-eating crater known as the U.S. economy. And uh, I want to take your calls to hear about your experience of what is going on in your life in the economy. For me, it was interesting. Like I, so, I mean, I grew up poor, and I've mentioned this on the show before. And uh, I mean, people always say that like it sort of means something or gives them some credibility. I've just had experience, you know. There's an old saying in literature, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. But uh, I would argue that the poor 
are a foreign country. They do things differently there. And we need to create as many opportunities as possible for those who want to exit poverty. Exiting poverty is a, is a tricky thing because you grow up in this milieu, in this social tribe, this underworld of people who, have, who are basically broke. And breaking out of that can create a lot of resentment. Poor people love to think that they just didn't have any opportunity, the system was rigged and, and all that. And when they see someone get out of poverty who grew up poor, kind of resentful, right? And they try and make up all these reasons as to why and so on. And so we want to have as many ropes dangling down to the poor people to airlift them out of poverty if they want. I mean, there's lots of benefits to staying in poverty. You get to keep your social circle. You don't have to work that hard. The average uh, poor family uh, in America works a chillingly low number of hours a week, and that's whether there's a recession or not. But let's go on with some more statistics. So you, you know, if you're having a tough time in the economy, well, the numbers, are, the numbers have got your back. There are 1.3 million fewer jobs in the U.S. economy than when the last recession began in December 2007. 1.3 million fewer jobs. And that's with all the nonsense jobs that are created by the state, all the short-term shovel-ready, dig-a-hole-and-fill-it-in crap that is created by the state. Ah. <sighs> The underwhelming 74,000 jobs added in December, this last December, dampens the notion of recovery. There are 8 million jobs that have vanished from the Great Recession. Just to keep pace with population growth, the U.S. economy needs to add 143,000 jobs every month. 140. So they say, oh, look, we added 75,000 jobs. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Because more people are trying to join the workforce, so you're in that negative. And what kind of jobs are coming back? A job is not a job is not a job is not a job. Quality, a quality of jobs that have been, quote, created since the end of the last recession do not match the quality of the jobs lost during that recession. Lower wage industries constituted 22% of recession losses but 44% of recovery growth. Mid-range, mid-wage industries, 37% of recession losses, only 26% of the recovery. Higher wage industries, 41% of recession losses and only 30% of recovery growth. So the jobs that are coming back are, to use a technical Latin term, crap. They are crap jobs. Low rent, low wage, part-time, no or low benefits, junk jobs. And there's not, nothing wrong with junk jobs. I mean, my first 10 years were junk jobs. But uh, it ain't enough for a family, brothers. After adjusting for inflation, men who work full-time in America today make less money than men who worked full-time in America 40 years ago. Ah, if only we continue to get paid in gold. <laughs> men who work full-time in America make less money than men who worked full-time in America 40 years ago. Little things happened in the last 40 years, which a massive, massive revolution in communications and electronics and data transmission technologies. 40 years ago was the early 70s, because mid-70s, early to mid-70s. I remember going to see a Bond film at some point in the 70s, and a digital watch was so cool, it showed up in the opening part of a Bond film. He got out of bed with the usual hyper-illustrious female agent 
of sexuality. And he pushed his watch. He had to push it then because, you know, battery batteries were expensive. He had to wire him up to a car battery on a backpack or something like that. He pushed his watch and you could see numbers. Oh, and that was in the late 70s, I think. A friend of mine's father was an engineer and paid $450 for his first four-function calculator, which I believe was... Chinese, Chinese men with abacus is somewhere deep inside this not-too-small box. Now you have all the human knowledge in your pocket. What a massive revolution, and what an incredibly income-enhancing revolution that should have been. I think definitely on par with the invention of the internal combustion engine, the printing press, the communications and technology revolution of the last 30 years, has not only not contributed to our income, it has diminished our income. This is so staggering. Oh, I mean, I think you get it, right? I mean, I studied history at the graduate level and studied a lot of economics history. It's so staggering, but also so horrifyingly predictable. What do governments do with wealth? Individuals save, invest, whatever, spend. What do governments do with wealth? Well, they use wealth as collateral on which to borrow. All you are to the government is collateral and votes. So they'll pay you some money, but they'll use your productivity, the future productivity of your children, to borrow. So when you have a government in control of significant sectors of the economy, when the private sector or what's left of the private sector economy produces, spits out something absolutely glorious, magical, staggering, astounding, like the electronics revolution of the past 30 years, the government is like, hey, more productivity, fantastic. I can use that as collateral for debt. Economic growth in a state of society is food for the cancer of state power. If you look at history, all empires are preceded by significant economic freedom. Significant economic freedom produces wealth. Wealth allows governments to increase taxes without starving the population. And the assumed future tax receipts are used as collateral to borrow many times those tax receipts, which allows wars to be funded without the bill being sent to the enslaved population. 62% of all Americans make $20 or less an hour. That's gross. Nine of the top ten U.S. occupations pay an average wage of less than $35,000 a year. The middle class in Canada now makes more money than the middle class in the United States. But at least we have free crappy health care. According to one recent study, 40% of all Americans could not come up with $2,000 right now, even if there was a major emergency. 40% of all Americans could not come up with $2,000 right now if there was a major emergency. Less than one out of every four Americans has enough money to put put away to cover six months of expenses if there was a job loss or major emergency. 56% of all Americans have subprime credit in 2014. 49 million Americans are dealing with food insecurity worrying about meals. 
Ten years ago, the number of women in the U.S. who had jobs outnumbered the number of women in the U.S. on food stamps by more than two to one. But now the number of women in the U.S. on food stamps actually exceeds the number of women that have jobs. Charity is a very tough thing. I mean, there are people who need help because of bad fortune, bad luck, whatever, right? And, and I think everybody wants to help those people. But charity is like morphine. It's great when you have surgery, but it's highly addictive. I, in my life, have uh, I, I've given up on trying to help people privately. I've tried. I've tried. I've given lots of money away in my life, and almost always it's ended badly. I, you know, for, for me to try and do charity is like me trying to fix someone's cavities <laughs> with a ball-peen hammer. It's just not going to end well. So I now turn it over to professionals and donate money to people who have proven track records of actually helping people. But it's really, you know, it, it's one of the most complicated things to actually help someone. Anyone who's tried to intervene in somebody who's drinking too much or has bad habits, is, is, is gaining too much weight, uh, uh, is smoking, it's really hard to help people. And turning such a delicate, truly surgical process of aiding the poor over to the government, which has every incentive to maintain, to create and maintain poverty, poverty is votes. Well, it's crazy. 69% of the federal budget is spent either on entitlements or on welfare programs. The number of Americans receiving benefits from the federal government each month exceeds the number of full-time workers in the private sector by more than, what, 10? 10, 10 million? Well, no, no, that's not quite right. 20? No. 30? No. 40? Horrifyingly, no. 50? No. The number of Americans receiving benefits from the federal government each month exceeds the number of full-time workers in the private sector by more than 60 million souls. 60 million! That's literally like having one guy giving blood and 19 people who need a pint. Hmm, better get that guy some OJ because he's going to feel a little thirsty. Madness! After someone dies, their arms will twitch a while. There is still economic activity in the United States, but I would argue it's the twitches, it's the twitches of a state-ridden and state-destroyed economic corpse. There is no resurrection for capitalism. We must find something new. We must proselytize and help people understand it is not force that has failed. Sorry, it's not freedom that has failed, it is force that has failed. This is Van Molyneux for the Peter Schiff Show. We'll be right back after the break. Give us a call, brothers and sisters. Keep wishing it ain't like that. I just hit it out the park like a baseball bat. For the people in the stands who had their eyes shut. It's time to meet the man who stand and rise up. Peter Schiff Show. To President Obama, Madame Pelosi, and all of the socialist econ professors across America. We're sorry. We're sorry. Peter Schiff is back on the air. 
Good morning, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio sitting in for Peter Schiff. So, let's play the Munger games, shall we? Charles Thomas Munger, an American business magnate, lawyer, investor, and philanthropist, vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway Corporation, you know, the Warren Buffett organization, and uh, Buffett describes him as my partner. I think he's worth over about a billion dollars, and he says that people who have a lot of money should accept less in terms of wages. So if our fine sound crew could play Cut 14, let's have a little chat about that, shall we? I think the people on the top of the heap ought to voluntarily take less as part of their duty to the republic. In other words, I don't think everybody should, who's been especially favored should take the last dollar that he or she can get. Do I think we all have a, an obligation to dampen these fires of envy. When you rise to a certain point in life, I think you should, you should voluntarily and eagerly take less than you're worth. Yes, dampen the fires of envy. I think that's really, really an important principle. You know, I think that pretty women should cut themselves in the face. Because, you know, less pretty women are going to feel envious and resentful. I think tall people should cut off their feet. Oh, you know it'd be great? Sometimes I don't like the fact that people have better hair. Everybody should get the monk slice helicopter haircut that I have had basically since my early to mid-twenties. Brad Pitt, eat a damn muffin! Those abs are killing all the rest of the guys in the room. My God, man! I mean, I know you're looking scruffy sometimes, but... Seriously, Angelina Jolie, don't make us force-feed you. You got no junk in the trunk, and you got cheekbones that could cut ice. So, I'm sorry, resentment is, is key. You know, really great singers, stop singing so well. It makes those of us who can't sing as well really annoyed, Eric Clapton. I need you to take a brick and drop it on your hands, because there's people out there who really aren't as good at playing guitar, and they're bugged by Layla. Ooh, we should stop pursuing excellence because of the envy of the herd who really need us to pursue excellence to provide them all the stuff they use to distract themselves from their lack of pursuit of excellence. I want an excellent cell phone so I can play Candy Crush programmed by an excellent programmer so I don't go out and achieve anything great. Ooh, it bugs me that people are doing well. Ooh, it bugs me that people are making money and they're pretty and they're writing great songs and they're building beautiful houses and they're doing sit-ups. Ooh, that bugs me. And those people should stop doing great things and stop achieving great things because I like the couch. There's some reality TV on, and I've got some popcorn in the microwavey. So stop achieving great things, people. If only Mozart had been hit by a brick, wouldn't that have been just great for all of those Salieri's out there in the world who can't quite produce stuff as great? The idea that we should hamstring ourselves for the sake of the less able and the less competent is about the cruelest thing that we can do to the less able and the less competent. I had an operation last year, and I'll tell you this, I really wanted the surgeon to do his best. I didn't want him to do less than his best. I didn't want him 
to spare the feelings of lesser surgeons and do something dangerous when he was cutting me open. I'm sure he was a very skilled surgeon, I think. But I wanted him to do his best. You know, when I go to the dentist, I want him to do a good job. Not, not a kind of good job, a great dentist. I don't want them to botch it up for the sake of the feelings of less competent dentists. And nobody wants that. There's not anyone who wants that. A poor person who brings his car in to be fixed does not want the mechanic to do a terrible job, even though he could do a better job because there are worse mechanics out there. Everybody loves excellence when it serves them. Everybody hates the excellence that bugs them with the possibility and the opportunity that they have not pursued. The only people who are bothered by excellence are those who could have achieved excellence and chickened out. I am not bothered by great gymnasts. I have the flexibility of a frozen slab of sidewalk. There was no danger that I was going to overtake any gymnast in the known universe. When I was spending time in theater school, kind of bugged me how good Marlon Brando was because I really wanted to achieve something and I was actually in pursuit of that. The only people bothered by excellence are those who could have achieved it, but chickened out, chose to stay low in the low-rent district, chose not to bother the people they grew up with with their potential for excellence. People whose marriages fail because they were immature and petty and vindictive and childish and slept around and were lazy and callous and didn't open their heart to their partners, they're bothered by people with happy marriages because they know they could have had it if they'd just done the right thing. Smokers are bothered by the capacity of non-smokers to climb three flights of stairs without spitting out half a road of tar. Because they could have quit. Could have quit. People who are fat resent people who aren't fat. Because the people who aren't fat walked around a little bit, didn't sit around all day, didn't come home and sit around some more, didn't snack on whatever they wanted. When you resent excellence, that is the tattoo of your missed opportunities that you could have had and you chickened out from. Don't blame the people who've achieved excellence because you chickened out. Instead, take that resentment, take that energy and use it as propulsion, not as a break, as gas. Go get what you want. Life is short, you're going to die anyway, you're going to be thrown in a hole and they're going to throw dirt on your face and they're going to sing the wind beneath my wings and then everyone's going to go home and eat cake. And you'll be staring at the ass end of a worm from here to eternity with nothing going on ever, ever, ever again. Resentment is your propulsion. It's your jetpack to a higher place. Don't accept less. Encourage more. Because if we accept less, we lower the ambitions of those who could achieve more and help us with their excellence. This is Stefan Molyneux for The Peter Schiff Show. We'll be right back after the break. You won't
minutes and you take no prisoners. One minute you're up half a million in soybeans and the next boom. Your kids don't go to college and they've repossessed your Bentley. Are you with me? The revolution starts now. Starts We have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Turn those machines back on! You are about to enter the Peter Schiff Show. Show me the money! If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on Earth. The Peter Schiff Show is on. Call in now. 855-4-SHIFT. That's 855-472-4433. I don't know when they decided that they wanted to make a virtue out of selfishness. Your money, your stories, your freedom. The Peter Schiff Show. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. This is Stefan Molyneux uh, sitting in for Peter Schiff. I hope you're having a fantastic morning. We are talking about the smoking Arizona-sized crater called the American economy. But as I eagerly await your calls on on how the economy is affecting you, um, you can call me at 855-472-4433. That's 855-4-SHIFF. I could take a slight detour. We haven't talked about the NSA for a while, or at least I haven't on this show. But I would like to talk about the NSA because I always like to talk knowing that someone is listening. Now, Representative Jerry Nadler, Democrat from New York, let's hear him talk about his concerns about the NSA from Cut 19. Who I'm calling, who you're calling, how long we're talking, am I talking to my psychiatrist am i calling my mistress if i had one am i calling uh am i you know all that information steve colbert had fun with that when i was on his program once but all the information am i calling uh, right wingers am i calling left wingers all that information is telephone metadata you can learn a lot from metadata about a person and invade his privacy tremendously Right. That certainly is very true. That certainly is very true. And it is absolutely chilling the degree to which that slow temperature increase in the pot that kills the frog, you know that old story. I think it's a story, but it's a great analogy that if you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it jumps out right away. But if you put him in lukewarm water and slowly raise the temperature, he will not notice it and he will die. But this is how liberty dies. This is how freedom dies. The very idea that the government can at will record pretty much anything that's going on is so appalling and so shocking and such an overreach of the original idea of a constitutionally limited Republican government that for the American public to accept it is truly the death knell of our immediate hopes for a turnaround in the endless growth of state power. I wonder, I wonder how many votes in Congress are changed because of data the NSA has. These politicians, frankly, they're a pretty scurvy bunch. I mean, these aren't even people I'd trust with parking my car, (laughs) let alone running the affairs of a great nation. How many mistakes have they made? How many compromises have they made? How many phone calls have they made that are compromising or raise questions? How many websites have they visited? How much porn have they downloaded? 
what could be exposed about the politicians that is not being exposed if they do the right thing according to someone in power? Oh, do you feel like voting against this particular measure? Well, congressman, congresswoman, senator, political aspirant, let me show you your file. Let me show you what we have on you. Oh, it's quite a heavy one, isn't it? Quite thick. Goes on and on and on. Do you really still feel like voting against whoever has this file and can release it anonymously to the media? The media surely is hungry for gossip. Because gossip is infinitely easier than thought. Gossip is infinitely easier than principles. Gossip is infinitely easier than research and understanding and facts and arguments and all the things that make people's brains hurt. Ooh, do you know what he did? He visited this website. He called that guy. Ooh, the soft, easy hammock of acidic moral judgment is so much easier than attempting to understand the planet that you live in according to any vague moral principles. So, Congressman, we have a whole file on you. Do you really still feel like voting against your party? Do you still really feel like voting with your conscience? Got lots of calls to lobbyists in here. Got lots of calls to the heads of corporations in here. What do you think? Good idea or not such a good idea? Think about it in your own life. If everyone knew everything about everything you've done, which is pretty fast approaching, could you stand to the most hostile scrutiny imaginable? You ever wake up in a Vegas hotel room with a live boy or a dead hooker? Well, maybe it's not that bad. Uh, you know, I'm basically just trying to get myself out to get ahead of the, uh, the rumors. But if everyone knew everything, would you be sure that you had never done anything that might ruin your reputation? Well, reputation is important. You spend a lifetime building it, you can destroy it in about 35 seconds. Are you fully confident that if everything was known about you, everything you've done, every website you've visited, everything you've downloaded, anything, everyone you've called, every group you've donated to, every book you've ever taken out from the library, every YouTube video you've ever watched, are you sure that you'd come out smelling like roses? I don't think there's one human being on the planet who can make that claim with a straight face. You know, anyone makes that claim to me, I'm ducking before their Pinocchio nose takes out my eyeball, like the finger of some robot in Terminator. Duck! Liar incoming! <laughs> but this is the power that the government is growing. The power of the soft intimidation, not of jailing you, not of harassing you, not of hounding you, but of just making you weigh in the balance the costs and benefits of public exposure versus whatever is inconvenient to the state. Well, if you've done nothing wrong, you've nothing to hide. Yeah, right. As if Congress... Yeah, try and get some facts out about Benghazi from, from the White House. I mean, they redact emails, and the emails about Benghazi had to be forced out of them by a court action. 
and reveal that the narrative is a pure lie. We can talk about that later this week maybe, but I mean, the government is hiding things all the time. A woman in America recorded her own arrest and has been charged with wiretapping. But, you see, if the police have nothing to hide, they shouldn't mind all that information being recorded and available. The guy I know was arrested for supposedly attacking an officer, and it was only because somebody happened to have a cell phone running recording the incident that he was able to challenge anything. We all have something to hide. It's called privacy. That's why I don't take a dump on my front lawn anymore. Too many calls. We all have something to hide. How much a potential exposure is affecting our legal process? I would imagine it's quite a bit. Give us a call, 855-4SHIF. Stefan Molyneux for the Peter Schiff Show. We will be right back after the break. Peter Schiff Show. You've heard of Karl Marx, right? Well, now, meet his worst nightmare. This is the Peter Schiff Show. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio sitting in for Peter Schiff. So we're talking about the economy or the vague memory we used to call an economy that is now a whole bunch of people uh, attempting to hang off the welfare boobs of the uh, government in an attempt to avoid falling into the economic chasm called no jobs or crap jobs. What is this doing? What is this doing to people? You know, there's this uh, failure to launch thing that goes on. A young man in particular are not getting married. They're, they're galting out <laughs> as far as marriage goes. There's this MGTOW movement, men going their own way, where men are simply refusing to, to get involved and, and get married. The marriage rate in America has fallen insanely over the past 100 years. In 1920, there were 92.3 marriages for every 1,000 unmarried women. 2012... 31.1 marriages. Oh, so, you know, about a third of what it used to be. This is a demographic, a demographic earthquake. Marriage rate has fallen by 60% since 1970 alone. 1950, 78% of all households in the U.S. contained a married couple. Today, that number has declined to 48%. 75% of all American women would have problems even dating an unemployed man, which is surprising to no one with half a brain and any understanding of evolutionary biology. <sighs> Businesses in the U.S. are being destroyed faster than they are being created. The number of working-age Americans without a job has increased by 27 million since 2000. 29% of all U.S. adults under the age of 35 are living with their parents. Feasting on the leftover wealth of a priorly freer economic generation. 
young men are almost twice as likely to move back in with their parents as young women are. So there's this demographic caving in. Birth rates are crushingly low. In Japan, significant portions of young people are simply not interested, even in dating, let alone marriage, let alone having children. Now they have a replacement rate, 1.1 or 1.2 per couple. So not only do we have 100, 150, depending on how you calculate it, $180 trillion of unfunded liabilities in the United States, we also have a baby bust. You know, two kinds of creatures don't do that well in captivity, or at least there are two that are popping in my mind. One is a great white shark. The other is any kind of intelligent human being. Intelligent human beings do not breed well in the human zoo called the modern state. And so everyone has lent money to governments in the West based upon certain demographic trends, because remember, as I said earlier, we are collateral to be borrowed against, but they haven't really taken into account the falling birth rate and the declining marriage rate, which I think is, is tragic. Statism kills. Statism kills. 56 million abortions in the United States since Roe v. Wade. 56 million abortions. It's almost 10 holocausts, my friends. And what would have happened if those children had been born and put up for adoption to perhaps childless couples who really want kids? That's a lot of people who ain't here. Right. A lot of baby clothes that fall into nothing. A lot of cribs that never get built. A lot of extra sleep <laughs> for people. As a great tragedy. A great tragedy. How many children are not being born that otherwise would be born because of a lack of economic opportunities? Love is not foundational to marriage. Love is nice to marriage. It's icing on the cake. Love is not foundational to marriage. Marriage is a social covenant that says we are going to take care of these dependent kids for the next quarter century. Right? You don't have to sign a 20-year contract for your job because just about everyone is replaceable. But parents are not replaceable. Children who don't grow up with both parents statistically fare worse than just about any other single factor. It's worse than race. It's worse than any other demographic. It's worse than sociocultural economic status, it's worse than geography, it's worse than your educational system. Marriage is when you get together and say, hey, we're not going to break up, so if we have problems, you push us back together rather than easing us apart. That's what you say to your community. That's why the marriage is a public ceremony wherein you take a vow. My God, when did it happen that the most meaningful vow it's, it's a word too strong. It's a commitment too strong even for a meager word like promise. It's a vow. It is written in the unborn blood of future generations. It is a covenant. It is a binding. When did that vow become a trial? A let's see, a start a marriage. Uh, well, until I get bothered. 70% of marriages ended by women. Their number one complaint, I'm dissatisfied. Well, honey, 
You made a vow. You made a vow. Almost all marriages until death do us part in sickness and in health for better or for worse. There's no asterisk called until I'm dissatisfied. Most people who consider divorce who stay together within five years are happy that they did so. My God, can we have some staying power? We beat the Nazis. Can we endure a rocky part of a marriage? Come on, people. Make a vow and stick to it. Because if you have a get-out-of-jail-free card, you're going to be a much less helpful citizen. You don't have to choose such a great person. You don't have to wait for the right person if you have a get-out-of-marriage-free card. And we used to kind of look down on people who broke their word about the most important covenant in human society, the covenant of marriage. You made a promise to be there forever, and you walked out. Abuse and infidelity, that's how you used to get out of marriage. You had to prove abuse, you had to prove infidelity. Ah, the great arch-conservative Ronald Reagan in the 60s in California brought in no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce! How about no-fault non-payment of taxes? How about no-fault leaving the military? How about no-fault firing of bad government teachers? How about no-fault reneging on government pensions that the people who are forced to pay for them never voted on? Well, we can't have that, can we? Because that's state power. But you can have a no-fault divorce. And then you get caught up in the giant Kafkaesque torture hole hellscape known as the family court system in the United States where you have to beg arbitrary judges and pay predatory lawyers for the privilege of not living with someone. When you get rid of the big laws, you don't get no laws. You get a multiplication of tiny laws. You get the slow, bottomless, quicksand suctioning of human opportunity into a grinding repetition of legal inconsequentialities that make you lose your damn will to live. Get rid of a big law like keep your promise to stay married, you get a multiplicity of tiny laws, and you get the growth of the welfare state, which is basically the single mother subsidy state. When did we stop being able to fulfill our promises in the most important elements of human life? Let's start bringing that back and have the courage to disapprove of people who break their word on the very structure that keeps society afloat. This is Stefan Molyneux. We will be right back after the break for The Peter Schiff Show. Now return to the Peter Schiff Show. Call in now, 855-4-SHIFT. That's 855-472-4433. The Peter Schiff Show. Good morning, everybody. Stefan Molyneux sitting in for the illustrious Peter Schiff. Hope you're doing very well this morning. We have uh, a caller who would like to talk about Ukraine. Uh, Nick, are you on the line? Hey, how are you doing? I'm very well. Oh, uh, yeah. You asked a question earlier. It's 86 petabytes of porn I downloaded. That's how much the government's got on me. About 86 petabytes. I, I, think, I, yeah. I, I can't imagine, given how tired your hand would, is, what you dialed with, but I guess we'll leave that for another time. But uh, what, right. what's your thought? Um, any, anyway, um, the um, Ukraine, um, recent, the eastern part of Ukraine, a.k.a. Crimea, recently uh, did their vote um, over this last week or weekend, I guess, to uh, vote to um, 
to uh, remove themselves and uh, and not um, some were voting for Russia to join Russia. Some were voting to uh, just become a separate um, sovereign state, um, the Eastern Ukraine. Um, and I just want to say um, you may not you may want to mention this or talk, say as a talking point that uh, during the weekend the um, the NATO Ukrainian government, you know, NATO backed, um, put in a uh, they arrested a bunch of uh, quote unquote terrorists saying they uh, had, like, over 100,000, like, uh, already checked-in ballots to uh, separate from Ukraine as a whole, like, scandal thing that they're going to ho- say the whole thing is illegal and not it doesn't count. It doesn't, you know, it was, it was rigged. Right. Right. Well, I mean, Ukraine is, is interesting, and I've had uh, Paul Craig Roberts on my show a couple of times, so people can go to youtube.com forward slash radio to find those uh, interviews, so I won't go into the details I've talked about before. But I think there's a larger issue around Ukraine, and this is also occurring in Iraq, and it's also occurring in a wide variety of other places. In general, the end of colonialism after the Second World War, colonialism was never profitable, right, which is why when the Western governments ran out of money after the Second World War. They closed down colonialism. It was profitable for a few people and at the expense of the many and so on. But there were these terrible lines that were drawn, these ethnic conflicts that have occurred as a result of that. Uh, the Balkanization, as it's called, or as Czechoslovakia was stitched together after the First World War and then was uh, broke up, uh, broken up after the, uh, before the Second World War. So the people who used to be Russian in Ukraine uh, either want to become independent or they want to rejoin Russia. Why? Because according to some of the most deep and extensive social research, diversity sucks. It sucks. We've all grown up hearing diversity is a cultural strength. But in a massive study based on detailed interviews of nearly 30,000 people across America, Harvard political scientist Robert Putnam has found that the greater the diversity in a community, the fewer people vote. The less they volunteer, the less they give to charity, the less they work on community projects. In most diverse communities, neighbors trust one another about half as much as they do in the most homogenous settings. Almost all measures of civic health are lower in more diverse settings. Settings, sorry. As he writes, uh, sorry, as Scott Page, a University of Michigan political scientist, writes, the extent of the effect is shocking. So diversity is... Um, a huge problem in neighborhoods in terms of cohesiveness, in terms of uh, civic-mindedness, in terms of... Uh, and, and look, it kind of makes sense. I mean, people grew up in very diverse cultural backgrounds. They have less in common, and it's, it's tougher. It, it's interesting to visit other cultures, and I have co- friends from a wide variety of cultures. But in terms of neighborhoods, it's a lot of work to try and figure out what works and doesn't work in other people's cultures, if there's religious differences and so on, which there often are, in um, cultural differences. It just makes the neighborhood less positive, less friendly, less helpful, less unified, and so on. I mean, don't get mad at me. Get mad at the facts, if you dare. And so throughout the world, there are tribes. Now, philosophy, which is what I do, I'm a philosopher, what philosophy does is it tries to break down the barriers of tribes by reminding people that we all live in the same damn reality, and reason is universal. Science is not cultural. Right? There's no Sunni science or Bosnian science. There's good science, and then there's government science. Mathematics is not cultural. Mathematics is not tribal. 
tribal or cultural by definition is that which is not true. And because it's not true, people need to cling to each other to reinforce the falseness that they pretend to believe. Science is true. Science is not relative to people's style of dance or style of food or style of religious worship. Science is just true. As is mathematics, engineering, all the hard stuff. So in Ukraine, people, uh, like they do throughout the world, if they believe in tribal nonsense, they have a need, an addiction to the reinforcement of other people. We must all congregate and chant the same lies so we can pretend that they're true like physics. The need for the physics of other people's shared delusions is fundamental to our tribalism and is the enemy of peace and philosophy and reason and goodwill. But right now we live in a world that is still tragically largely tribal and the tribalism shows up in very primitive forms and the tribalism shows up in more sophisticated forms like Democrats versus Republicans which are kind of hardwired brain states that we're going to talk about tomorrow. So yeah, they want to go and rejoin other people who believe in the Russian heritage, in the Russian Orthodox Church, in the worship of Putin, in the cultural traditions, which are the non-true, non-objective, non-philosophical, non-value decisions or, or habits or thought patterns of the past. People who are tribalists, are far out to sea and they cling to each other like a shipwrecked man clings to a half-submerged barrel. They can't let go and they can't climb on board. They're just stuck there. Tribalism is an addiction that is driven by false beliefs that need to be reflected back to be perceived as true. And the tribalism that is occurring in Ukraine, that is occurring in the Middle East, that is occurring in Israel, that is occurring in neighborhoods throughout the world, is because people are preferring lies to truth. And the job of a philosopher is to say, this stuff is not true, this stuff is true. And if we all believed things that were true, then we would truly be a brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity, and it wouldn't really matter who you were ruled by, who was in charge of you, which flag was flying over here, what kind of food you're getting. It wouldn't matter. But we are generations away from that goal. So right now we have to put up with all of this nonsense, people storming back and forth, trying to find like-minded people who share their own delusions. And they're going to fight each other, and they're going to try and reject people not like themselves, and they're going to try and find people around them who are like themselves. See, the great thing with philosophy is the only people who aren't like you, if you're a philosopher or if you think rationally, are idiots. And how many of us want to really work hard and campaign and drive through the streets and march and write songs so we can spend more time with idiots? Not a very compelling crusade. There are idiots over there. Let's join them. These people are incompetent in thinking. Let's go hang out with them. No, if you're a philosopher, if you can think, and philosopher doesn't mean sort of trained or whatever it was, or it just means that you can think clearly, you're a critical thinker, reason and evidence are your guide, and you subject your opinions to the oracle of reason and evidence and conform to that. It's the same as the scientific method, whatever. But the crusade, let's join with the idiots, is not compelling to anyone. Even the idiots don't want you to join them, because they don't know that they're idiots until they're around somebody who can think. So... 
there's sort of a natural segregation of thinking people and idiots that neither wants to join with the other. But when there are a lot of idiots who all believe false things, they all want to cling to each other. These idiots have the wrong food. Those idiots have the right food. So let's have a revolution. These idiots believe this silly stuff. These idiots believe this stuff that doesn't seem silly to me, but it seems silly when I were those idiots over there, so let's all swarm and congregate over here. Teaching people to value false things is creating an addiction that's highly profitable around the world to a variety of institutions. And this is why the fight for reason and evidence is the fight against war, against tribalism, against useless conflicts. The basic question of humanity is how on earth do you know that you're different? How do you know that you're different? What is teaching you that you're different? Scientists don't have that problem. Mathematicians, engineers, biochemists, geologists. Well, we call it gold in Indiana, but in Illinois, it's pyrite. They don't have to worry about any of that stuff. How do you even know that you're different from the people over the hill? Well, if you're a scientist, you all speak a common language. Mathematicians all speak a common language. If it compiles in Uzbekistan, it compiles in New York. There's gravity in both places, I hear. Gases expand when heated everywhere. Speed of light. Well, I believe the man with shaggy hair who looked like he was constantly holding a Van de Graaff generator told us that it was constant. How do you even know that you're different from those people down the road? You may have a different color skin, but so what? That's not any foundational difference. It's like saying, I don't have anything in common with people who have different color hair. Hell, I'll even hang with people who have three nipples. Sometimes I'll pay them for the opportunity. How do you even know that you're different? Because you believe stuff that isn't true, and you're threatened by people who believe different stuff that isn't true, because it shakes the foundation of what you call an identity. Let go of that. Let go of illusion. The only freedom in the world that we will ever have is freedom from illusion. Philosophy can grant you that, and no other discipline in the world will give you that in any moral or value-based way. Science, science will tell you what's true. It won't tell you what's good. Philosophy will tell you what is true and good. So, yeah, Ukrainian people charge back and forth here and there, go here and there. Those of us who can think will continue to work to break down the artificial barriers between people so that we can be one tribe called rational. What a glorious world that will be. We'll be right back after the break. 855-4-SHIFTS. Fan Molyneux for the Peter Schiff Show. The Peter Schiff Show. out of ten historians agree. If Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine were alive today, both would be Schiff Radio Premium members. Somewhere up there, Thomas Jefferson is looking down with great pride. Schiff Radio continues right now. Good morning, everybody. Stefan Molyneux sitting in for Peter Schiff. Uh, I will be in actually all week stuffing more syllables into your ear than crushing the OED with an accordion could possibly manage. I hope you're doing very well. We have uh, time for one last caller in our tragically last segment. I really, really could do this all day. 
Greg, are you on the line? I am on the line. How are you doing? I'm well. What's in your mind? My mind is blown. You, um, what you said about uh, diversity, I, I always wondered, like, why does everybody say we want diversity, we want diversity? I don't want diversity. I want intelligent, wise, uh, productive people. I really don't care whether they're diverse or not. Yeah, diversity is one of these words that somehow has been magicked into goodness when it is actually a neutral word. Like a woman getting raped, she has a diverse opinion about the value of sex with her, with her <laughs> rapist, right? Diversity it just means differences or opposites. So diversity being a positive uh, is, not, uh, is not great. I mean, the, the Democrats in the United States generally have a policy, which they've been pursuing since the 1960s, when Ted Kennedy brought in a bill that he said was not going to change American demographics, which was, we don't want Europeans anymore. We want people from developing countries to come to the United States. These people generally come from more status regimes. They generally focus more on the government, and they generally have less or fewer opportunities for economic development, which means they're going to vote Democrat. So importing massive amounts of uh, foreign Democrat voters has been a stable, stable policy of the Democrats for the, since the 1960s. In fact, without those votes and the votes of public sector unions, the Democratic Party would probably be smaller than the Libertarian Party. And that's saying something. So uh, there has been this whole. But to get people to accept this massive influx of uh, cultural opposites is uh, it's a challenge. So what you have to have is a massive amount of propaganda saying that anyone who has a problem with diversity must be a racist. Racist! Oh, look, that was easy. I don't actually have to think or deal with facts or deal with evidence or anything like that. And diversity fundamentally, as I talked about, I have much more in common with someone from Saudi Arabia who can think than I do from somebody I grew up with who can't. Uh, but uh, cultural diversity is, is a huge problem when it comes to social cohesiveness uh, and the people's pleasure on living in communities. But uh, what's your experience been with this stuff? Well, the diversity or just – well, in general, let me just say something. I, I can, I, it's never been as clear to me as it is after the last hour and 53 minutes why they made Socrates drink hemlock. Because <laughs> if, if, your show, if your show were presented to the youth of America, it, it would change the status quo overnight. I mean, if they were able to just grasp a third of it, 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 would, it would have profound change. And not that there's anything completely new other than this last diversity comment that in what you've said, but you've put it together in such an understandable manner that I, I'm going to have to uh, tune into your... You, you have a show as well, is that not true? Yeah, freedomainradio.com. It's all free, no ads. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, and look, I mean, uh, I, I, the only thing I have in, in common with Paul Walker is, as a philosopher, I like him young, too. Uh, so, yeah, young people, of course, <laughs> their brains are still being developed, and they haven't imbibed so much... Uh, of the nonsense that passes for thought in adult society. So, yeah, I mean, the more we've got like 65 million downloads of my philosophy show, so that's all going very well. We do have some younger people, and it's fantastic because it is far better. You know, when I was younger, I actually still played a lot of tennis, uh, a lot of tennis. I sort of competed in, in tennis. And I, I taught myself how to serve, and like a year or two later, I got lessons, and I was like, oh, undoing that, <laughs> what I taught myself was really tough. Uh, so, yeah, I, I hope to to get people before they've made too many bad decisions on too much bad information, for sure. And it's not to say that I don't enjoy old people changing as well. And <laughs> It's just that that's, uh, that doesn't happen all that readily either. 
Yeah, of course, if you get old enough, uh, other people need to change you. But uh, yeah, so there is a, uh, yes. <laughs> in general, right, if you want to change people's minds, uh, sooner is better than later. You know, it's like promoting health or good nutrition, right? I mean, you want to prevent problems uh, rather than uh, cure them, right? That old saying, you know, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, so, yeah, trying to – and look, I mean, of course, if you're a good philosopher and you're not – like, the, the way you know you're a good philosopher is you're being accused of corrupting the young because the young then question the false beliefs of the older, which threatens the entire power structure that we all live under, right? The matrix is simply illusion. Uh, if we're not plugged into anything, we can change at any time. One thing I've been dying to say somebody, to someone who has some intelligence, and I think you'll get this – the one thing I find most disappointing about government in this current state is it's the job of, say, uh, a car company to make you believe the answer to all happiness in life is to buy a new automobile. And it's the job of uh, someone who makes Fritos, to, you know, the same and so on and so on. But it is not the job of government to make you think all answers to life are a bigger government. I mean, that's one of the only institutions... Ugh. Which but the government have doesn't have a job. Saying the government has a job or people who work for the government have a job is like saying that being a mugger is an occupation. They don't have a job. They have a gun. And when you have a gun, you don't have a job. You are a predator. You have predator and prey. Right? A lion's job is not hunting. And the government doesn't have a job. It has a gun. It doesn't need to reason with you. It doesn't need to propagandize you. I mean, it does anyway because it makes it need fewer guns. But you car companies, assuming that they're not, you know, generally statist fascist monstrosities as they've sort of become in America, they actually have to entice you. Uh, you know, a, a rapist don't need to bring a flower and the government doesn't need to bring reason to the table. Yes, I mean, but I, I'm just saying it's, it's one of the few, call it entities, business, whatever you want to call it, that should not attempt to grow itself. Every private entity should attempt to grow itself. But the, the, the counterbalance we have to that is we can walk away from whatever they're doing. Government, we cannot walk away from whatever they're doing. In fact, we can't even run away from what they're, <laughs> whatever they're doing. So uh, it's, it's um, I don't know, it's just bad. Well, it is. And, of course, uh, everybody who wants more government wants more guns. Government is the word that we use to cover up the coercion of a centralized monopoly on the initiation of force. When people say there ought to be a law, they're saying, I think guns will solve this problem. We have a tra tragic problem called poverty, underutilization of human resources, the squandering of human potential. Guns will solve it. And this idea that guns are this literally magic bullet that shoot flowers and rainbows and unicorn butts and infinite opportunities for the improvement of the species is a falsehood. When you lift the lid of propaganda, and as the old Confucian saying goes, the beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper names, the government is force. This used to be well known in society. Hundreds of millions of lives were lost throughout history trying to uncover the basic reality that government is force. And we've forgotten about it. And all old wisdoms that are forgotten produce new tyrannies. When we forget the basic truths hard won through history, we replicate the errors and make those people who fought those tyrannies die for nothing. I respect the dead who fought for my freedom. I will continue the fight. Tomorrow we will be back 10 a.m. Eastern. Stefan Molyneux for The Peter Schiff Show. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, he tells me, girl, I love you. Yes, I want you. Can't wait till you get here.